and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 56. I'm Nick Dixon here with the always trending Toby Young. Coming up, Rishi gets tough, Whitehall goes woke or woker, and Justin Trudeau honors a Nazi, obviously, plus loads more, and of course, peak woke. But Toby, I thought we'd start with a quick point of clarification. We've had a few people complaining about last week where you spoke about Russell Brand, and some people felt that you, you they didn't quite understand your position or you weren't quite clear enough on due process. And some people even accused me of the same, even though I have several tweets that were very clearly saying it's good that people care about due process. And even though I don't like brand, I'm in favor of due process. I couldn't have made it much more clear. But your position, some people felt you were, well, one reviewer says, I could barely believe my ears at the cavalier way in which Toby was happy to dismiss requirements for legal due process. This week needs a major course correction. Although they still gave us five stars, which is nice. So do you want to clarify your position on that, Toby? Yes, I think I was. Cl- I, my 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 position is that it's a bit simplistic to say um, that unless someone has been found guilty in a court of law of sex crimes, um, then they shouldn't suffer any negative repercussions at all. They should just be able to carry on with their life, earning their living as normal. I thought that was too high a bar because it's notoriously difficult to prosecute people for sex crimes. And in most cases, the women who are the victims of sex crimes don't want to go through the process for understandable reasons. So don't actually bring a complaint, which is in fact the case, uh, or was the case, I think, last week when we were discussing this um, with Russell Brand. Um, uh, uh, And I think that in some cases, if there is... um, some persuasive, robust, corroborative evidence, corroborated evidence that someone has committed some fairly heinous sex crimes, even if they haven't been found guilty in a court of law of having committed those crimes, then it doesn't strike me as unreasonable that they should suffer some negative repercussions, which isn't to say that YouTube are justified in demonetizing Russell Brand before he's been found guilty in a court of law, or that Rumble would have been justified in doing the same had they done so, but they didn't. But I think it's reasonable for his agents, for instance, to part company with him, having kind of passed the evidence pulled together after a four-year investigation by top-flight investigative journalists working for The Times, The Sunday Times, and Channel 4 Dispatches. Um, So my position was a nuanced one. I wasn't saying that um, he isn't entitled to legal due process. Of course he is, if... um, the police charge him with any crimes. And I wasn't saying he should be cancelled outright just because a lower bar, which is that some due process, but not legal due process, has taken place. And a group of investigative journalists have assembled these charges, done their best to corroborate them, uh, talk talk to the witnesses, um, seen the evidence that the witnesses have supplied and so on and so forth. It seems to me that that, that in some cases, if the, if the negative repercussions you're facing aren't going to be ruinous, then that is a high enough bar. Uh, Maybe that's not clear enough. Maybe that's too nuanced for some people. But it just seems to me that if you're going to insist that unless someone has been found guilty of sex crimes in a court of law, they should suffer no repercussions whatsoever, then that's going to let a lot of very bad men get away with some very toxic behavior. Um, Mm. And the fact that he is, you know, being held to account up to a point based on a journalistic due process, but not a legal one, doesn't strike me as a grotesque miscarriage of justice. Although I don't think he should be demonetized, lose his ability to make a living until he's been found guilty, if he's found guilty in a court of law. 
But is it is that a sort of no smoke without fire approach? You, you're saying you, you you understand the agent has to cancel him, but that that will affect his ability to make a living. So it's kind of the problem with that approach is it's just where do you draw the line because the law has to be the line. For example, with 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 um, Mason Greenwood from Man United, I said, look, whatever you've heard, whatever however much you might hate him, and many people did because of videos that uh, audio they'd heard and so on on the internet. When charges were dropped completely as they were. He ha- people were saying, well, he can't be allowed to play, but he has to be allowed to play because otherwise, what is the standard and how do we do it in future? How do we, you know, what's the precedent? How, it, there's no workable standard, even if that person you find despicable. So to me, it seems the same with Russell Brand because the only problem with your thing, I can understand it's nuanced, but is, is where would you draw the line in future? That's my problem with it. Yeah, but if you do draw the line where the people who've been criticising me want to draw it, doesn't that mean that a lot of bad men are going to get away with a lot of very bad behaviour um, because you're placing the bar extremely high? What you're effectively saying is that if a public figure, a celebrity, um, is accused of sex crimes by people um, and there's a lot of corroborating evidence, but they haven't yet complained to the police and the person hasn't been prosecuted, that the evidence the testimony of these various women who've been abused should just be disregarded and they should be able to carry on as if they haven't done anything wrong. That's your case. And the case against is if we do go well, how do you along with respond that, to that? How, how do you respond to that argument? Well, I respond by saying the problem with that is that the opposite is that any man can be destroyed at any time with just allegations. That's the obvious opposite problem. The problem, yeah, I understand your problem. Well, I think, yeah, and I think um, I understand that. Um, and I would... And and as I said last week, I think, um, I don't think anyone should have suffered any negative repercussions because their names appeared on the shitty media men list, which was an anonymous list compiled by a New Yorker about 10, maybe longer years ago. Um, And I spoke to a man who did, you know, his his, his book tour was cancelled, his agent dumped him. Um, he, He was ostracized by his friend group. And um, and he came very close to committing suicide. He bought the suicide. He bought the kind of stuff he'd need to do it. Uh, tied a plastic, took lots of barbiturates, tied a plastic bag around his head, sat in his car on a mountaintop waiting to die. And in the end, changed his mind, took the bag off, made himself sick, survived and then fought back and actually sued this woman who'd compiled the shitty media men list. And I think they settled out of court. Don't know. Can't remember. Um, but um I don't think he should have suffered in that way, uh, but because there was no corroborating evidence, it was just an anonymous allegation. Similarly, with everyone's invited, I thought schools wildly overreacted to that, given that all the allegations were anonymous. There was no corroborating evidence at all. It was all hearsay. Uh, mm. But in the case of the accusations against Russell Brand, there is a wealth of evidence. Um, uh, uh, I mean, you've read them. I mean... Without without wishing to kind of uh, say for sure that he's guilty, he certainly looks guilty of at least some of the things he's been accused of. Um, I mean, I think another thing I'd throw back at people who say the standard ought to be, unless you're found guilty in a criminal court, you should suffer no negative repercussions, um, is, well, what about civil court? So Andrew Tate, I think we learned this week, I think it was this week, and as I misread the date on the story, is being sued in the high court by, I think, four women who are accusing him of various crimes, including rape, um, uh, uh, because they cannot persuade the police 
to investigate their complaints. Um, and I think they went to the police. The police have effectively said there isn't enough evidence to prosecute here. Uh, so instead, they're bringing a case in the civil court and the, um, the bar is lower. In a civil case, you only have to show that someone is likely to have committed what you've accused them of on the balance of probability. The standard isn't beyond a reasonable doubt. It's on the balance of probability. So it could be that if um, Russell Brand's accusers, some of whom have now gone to the police and the police have opened an investigation into him, no charges have been brought uh, yet. Um, But it could be that if no charges are brought, um, these women could bring a case against Russell Brand in the High Court. And um, if they were able to show, convince a judge that on the balance of probability, Russell Brand had indeed done the things they're accusing him of, um, he would then have to pay, you know, a massive fine. Would the people maintaining it should be beyond reasonable doubt, nothing else is good enough, claim that he shouldn't pay a fine if he's found guilty of having committed these sins in um, a civil court? Um, That seems to me to be, you know, um, uh, wrong too. Yeah, well, I think we've laid out the two arguments, really. I mean, we're in a world now, the problem is we're in a world now where anyone can be accused. Basically, any famous sports star will be accused of rape. Conor McGregor, Ronaldo, and on and on. You basically, we've just seen Mendy, who just beat his case. You will get accused of rape at a certain level of sport. It almost seems inevitable, you know. So that's the problem is that people abuse it. But I see your point as well. I suppose it comes down to the individual choice. I mean, the agent can choose to look at the the weight of evidence and go, I don't want to be associated with this guy. Of course, you can look at the hypocrisy and go, why were they all happy to be associated with him for years? And that's a separate argument. But then again, is that too much like saying, is that too much like cancel culture? That's what cancel culture is. It's essentially going, we're canceling this guy unilaterally without any court case or something like that. So that's the danger. But I do understand your point. Mm. I think we've given both sides of it and maybe people can just make up their own mind based on that. It's a tricky one when trying to decide whether something is an example of cancel culture and the person should be defended or whether it's just different people spontaneously deciding that they disapprove of something somebody has said or done and want to express that disapproval. I mean, often you know, there are Twitter pylons, which because everyone is saying the same thing about someone at the same time, feel organised feel orchestrated and a lot of people think that the cancellation of Russell Brand was orchestrated Um, but um, you know often they're not orchestrated Um, it's just a common and fairly widespread reaction to what someone has done I think you know when it's orchestrated and when it's clearly designed to deprive someone of their livelihood because you politically disapprove of things that person has said then that's cancel culture Um, but sometimes it's just a spontaneous expression of kind of mass disapproval and I think for me the reaction to Russell Brand falls more on that side of the line yeah that's fair enough and a quick other wrinkle finally is that of course even when convicted it can still be wrong Andrew Malkinson was convicted and served 17 years, wrongly accused of rape. There was no evidence. There was only eyewitness, contested eyewitness accounts, no DNA evidence. Eventually, DNA evidence emerged that actually vindicated him, and he was finally released. But he he was given an extra 10 years for refusing to confess. So that's about as disgusting as it gets, and I suppose that's people's fear. One, of course, wrongful conviction, but also wrongful conviction in the court of public opinion which is also horrific. So I think that's what mm. people are really worried about. But yeah, you've given well, the other yeah. yeah, I just one more wrinkle before we get on to okay. talk about Caroline, Caroline Dineage, um, uh, is that um, uh, there's the anonymity issue. So um, Andrew Tate has, um, uh, I think his legal team 
have asked um, the High Court that if this case does go to the High Court, if they accept it and it goes forward, um, the his accusers shouldn't be entitled to anonymity any more than he's entitled to anonymity. It has to be on a level playing field. Um, and I don't think the judge has um, adjudicated on that issue yet. Mm, that's interesting, yeah. And there is something in that. Yeah, well, as you say, some, sometimes these things can be orchestrated and sometimes they're just public feelings. So with that in mind, Caroline Dynage, this, this occurred after our last episode, so we have to address it. Caroline Dynage, as part of this Culture, Media and Sport Committee, took it upon herself to write a series of letters. And I refer to this as the government late at night when I had a bad headache and a, an MP picked me up on that and said, well, it's a select committee, really. So, okay, it's a select committee. It's not the government. And it's really almost seems like a one woman mission, but it depends who you speak to. I mean, so she wrote this letter to Rumble saying that we would be grateful if you could confirm whether Mr. Brand is able to monetize his content, including his videos relating to the serious accusations against him. If so, we would like to know whether Rumble intends to join YouTube in suspending Mr. Brand's ability to earn money on the platform. So it was an absurd overreach. She wrote to X, she wrote to TikTok. I believe she wrote to GB News about Bev Turner and Andrew Pierce, which seemed like a perfect example of, of a, a you know good debate on, on TV of the kind we don't often see on the mainstream media. So what was she thinking, Toby, with this bizarre letter of sort of semi-threatening these platforms? And of course, just to say quickly, Rumble completely wrote back and basically said, F off, we believe in free speech. We don't agree with all our creators, but that's not what we're about. We're about free speech for everyone. Yes, and um, I suppose you could argue that it that it's been partially effective in that various advertisers have now withdrawn their advertising on Rumble, um, including yeah. HelloFresh, um, which rather upset me because I'm a big fan of HelloFresh. Oh, really? I, I order yeah four HelloFreshes every week and cook them with my kids, and it's basically what we we live off. Um, ah, that's uh, a big So, so that was, I never uh, eat that fresh a... foods. So I never have to face it. Yeah, just just if, <laughs> just before we get into that story, then yeah, ASOS. HelloFresh, Burger King, and Barbican pulled the ads from Rumble uh, as well as what you're referring to. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, as you say, she's not a member of the government. Um, and it's important, I think, to get our facts right because otherwise the other side can discredit us quite quickly. And that happened to Russell Brand, actually, who said in um, the video he released a few days ago responding to the allegations on Rumble um, that um, here's proof that um, they're out to get me because I'm telling the truth. Um, uh, uh, the government wrote to Rumble and told Rumble um, uh, to demonetize me. Um, and then he was immediately pulled up on that and said, misinformation, she's not a member of the government. So he immediately discredited his own argument uh, because he'd exaggerated her importance. She's not a member of the government. She's the chair of a select committee, select committees, are made up of backbenchers, not members of the government. They're an example of the legislature holding the executive to the account. By definition, they're not members of the government. Um, uh, she also, some people have interpreted it as her writing to Rumble to tell Rumble to kick him off the platform, um, which is kind of how Rumble responded. But that wasn't what she was asking. She was asking Rumble to demonetize him. I'm not defending what she did. I think it was idiotic. I think she was um, I think she was just trying to insert herself into the story, saw an opportunity to get some publicity, which she thought would reflect well on her. Uh, maybe flexing her muscles a bit as the chair of the DCMS Select Committee, knowing that Ofcom, which has just been made a far more powerful regulator by the passing of the online safety bill, 
won't just be the state regulator of uh, won't be just be a state broadcast regulator. It'll be the regulator of the internet, social media as well. Um, maybe she was flexing her muscles, knowing that in due course the head of Ofcom will be appearing before her select committee and hauled over the coals if the select committee doesn't think Ofcom's doing enough to um, rein in people like Russell Brand on social media. So, yeah, there might have been a kind of political motive behind it. But for me, it just felt like grandstanding, publicity seeking, attention seeking. Uh, I also think it was a known goal. You know, even though Russell Brand um, slightly fumbled the ball, Nevertheless, it was gifting him um, uh, more ammunition, more evidence that the reason these allegations have surfaced now in the mainstream media is because he's upsetting all the wrong people. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a coordinated attempt to shut him up because he's telling the truth about the vaccines and the lockdown and climate change and blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, so, you know, I don't think that defence on his part is very credible for reasons we discussed last week. Um, I think there are, you know, there's an innocent explanation for why the story is only materialised now. And I think the fact that he has become a kind of politically controversial figure on the right uh, is a factor, but I don't think it's the main factor. Um, but mm. um, by doing what she did, she's effectively um, you know, providing him and all those who still you know, have kept faith with him with the evidence they need to corroborate that conspiracy theory. So it was yeah. really stupid. <laughs> yes. And even I have started to wonder about the conspiracy theory now. I say even I, because on brand, I've been extraordinarily moderate and nuanced. But when she did do that, I was never of the opinion, you know, they're just out to get him. I did think it made him more vulnerable that he's no longer part of the regime. But that's a different point from they're solely out to get him because of that. However, I did start to wonder, once she wrote these letters, for a second I thought, Maybe the regime has people, and people have criticised me for saying the regime too much, but those people can F off. Maybe the regime has these things waiting because they do want to encroach now upon tech platforms like Rumble, alternative tech platforms. They do want to use the online safety bill, and they have certain people, you know, assets lying around they can use. And one such asset is the case against Russell Brand. And they go, okay, now we want to launch that. Let's use Brand to do it. It did briefly occur to me. She certainly lent more credence to that idea. Because if one was to say we want to launch an attack, it would be the perfect excuse, wouldn't it? I think um, the mistake you're making is you're assuming that because um, various establishment figures um, are doing their best to weaponize this scandal to try and attack um, uh, free speech on social media, um, that they've somehow manufactured this scandal. I think that um, actually they're just really good at um, exploiting opportunities. They're kind of on a hair trigger. They're waiting to pounce like a predator. Um, and the moment there's an opportunity they can make political hay with, they're very quick to make it, much quicker than people on the right. Um, mm. yeah, we saw this with um, the death of George Floyd. It was immediately exploited by all kinds of non-profits, Democrats, um, activists, uh, 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 and and it immediately created a kind of really censorious climate around all the issues they believed in. So it became impossible to challenge them for at least you know eighteen months, and lots of people were punished for doing so. Um, uh, but I don't think that's because they you know paid 
the rogue cop to kind of strangle or suffocate George Floyd. I just think it was a, from their point of view, it was just a golden opportunity, which they were very quick to exploit because they're brilliant at exploiting these kinds of opportunities. Well, indeed, many people call them the predator class for that reason. And I suppose, yeah, it's a variant of never let a good crisis go to waste. Never let an alleged sex pest go to waste. And by the way, I think Floyd died of a drug overdose. But just to give your side, Toby, and that's not my side, but that's, I said I briefly considered maybe they are right. But I also thought Silky Carlo was pretty smart. And people don't like this. You're sort of the king of nuance and not going too far and not giving the other side ammunition by overstating the case. But some people really don't like that. And I did it a little bit with the select committee thing, being very careful. And then Silky Carlo did it here. And I saw her the other day briefly at the House of Lords. She, of course, is a big bro- director of Big Brother Watch. She said, I will criticize censorship wherever it happens, but the government did not try to censor Russell Brand's channel, nor does this bear any relation to the online safety bill. Exploiting real censorship concerns for faux martyrdom is sad, desperate, and frankly despicable stuff. And she's linking to his video where he did do something a bit sneaky. He did sort of go, you know, they're trying to get me, the government, this is classic. And then he did this thing, which is quite an interesting phrase. He said, in the context, remember this happens in the context of the online safety bill. And you can't really dispute that because... We are in the context of the online safety bill in a broad sense, but it's not exactly saying this is part of the online safety bill or because of it. He's saying it's in the context of it. And actually lefties do that all the time. The Guardian will say, this comes in the wake of the George Floyd, right? You know, they'll throw George Floyd riots. They'll throw anything in there that they want to claim is relevant. So he said in the, but Silky was very keen to point this out. And of course, people didn't like her doing this. And she then added rather an MP, Caroline Dynage wrote an outrageously unwise letter raising concerns about Brand's channel being monetized. The effect was predictable. She should immediately clarify she has zero censorship or demonetization powers and regrets attempting to pressure the platforms. So she's basically, she says she's furious that Brand is misrepresenting and exploiting the issues. He serves only himself. So it's very similar to your position. It's like, let's be absolutely clear about where the parameters are here. And Mm. Brand's muddying it and Dynage is muddying it. Yes, I mean, yeah, and I I think that's, broadly right. Um, I'd just part company with Silky insofar as one of the reasons Caroline Dynage sent the letter she did is because she is uh, she knows um, that um, in due course, um, the head of Ofcom will be brought before the DCMS Select Committee and asked to account for themselves. And she, she may have thought of the letters um, indirectly as a warning shot across the bowels of Ofcom, as if to say, if you don't do your best to censor people like Russell Brand um, in future, once you have these new powers, um, we'll want to know why. I mean, it might have been a, a, it might have been in the back of her mind. Hmm. Yeah, appalling if so, but very possible. And what was so strange about it was just her ignorance about law, about our civil liberties. I mean, many people pointed out it goes against Magna Carta and one can ridicule the sort of Magna Carta legal offences. We've seen that ridiculed in the past when ordinary people try and use these offences. But Clause 39, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any other way, nor will we proceed with force against him or send others to do so except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. People are saying it very much went against the spirit of that and this this overreach, I don't know if you thought there's anything in that. And as a final thing, people also pointed out her husband was a member of the, or high up member of the 77th Brigade, worth noting perhaps. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I don't think, I mean, Silky's right. She doesn't have any legal powers. Um, uh, um, Rumble are perfectly free 
to ignore her letter, which it duly did. Um, When she does haul Dame Melanie Dawes, the chief executive of of Ofcom, or when she appears before her select committee, Dame Melanie Dawes doesn't have to do her bidding. She won't have to apologise if she doesn't oversee a more censorious regime. Um, uh, but, But I think it's, you know, a lot of the decisions that social media platforms make about who to demonetize, who to kick off their platforms, a lot of the decisions that Ofcom will make about what complaints to take seriously, how severely to fine um, social media companies that they think aren't doing their bidding or complying with the law. There's a lot of gray areas there. There's a lot of room for discretion, for the exercise of judgment. So that's why politicians, even though they don't have any formal power, have a kind of pulpit and they can therefore exercise political power in that sense you know they can try and influence uh, where people draw the lines how ofcom and how social media content moderators exercise their judgment um and they're, they're all kind of pushing in one direction um and even though there are some legal protections in the online safety bill for freedom of speech um you know so thanks in part to the efforts of the free speech union. So um, the clause which would have required uh, social media platforms to remove um, uh, 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 legal but harmful content uh, and the clause enabling the Secretary of State at DCMS to define what content it wanted social media platforms to address, that's gone. And that was partly thanks to our lobbying efforts, the lobbying efforts of Big Brother Watch and other free speech advocacy groups. And we also got, there's a protection in there, which is that social media platforms, when deciding what content to remove, have to have due regard for freedom of expression. That's the least onerous of the legal duties, due regard. It's virtually meaningless. Uh, we got that bumped up to have particular regard, which may not sound like a big difference, but it's it's one level up. Um, make it slightly harder for social media companies to completely disregard freedom of expression. And there are also protections built in for journalistic content and content of democratic importance. Now, basically, the second is just designed to make um, MPs immune from being censored um, by social media platforms. But journalistic content, that could be more meaningful. And if Russell Brand could um, persuade Ofcom that he's a journalist and acting as a journalist when he talks about the issues he does on his channel, um, then he would be entitled to slightly more robust protections. But I think Ofcom would not censure Rumble for not censoring Russell Brand. I think I think uh, they could within they could very much be within the rules, and I think it would be an overreach on Ofcom's part if they were to um, fine Rumble for not removing Russell Brand's content. Okay. Well, we don't want to do a whole second episode on Russell Brand, so maybe we'll move on. And people, we should appreciate Toby's work on things like getting due regard up to particular regard and all these kind of small, these hard practical things that you know people don't necessarily appreciate. And I think speaking of the, the, the pragmatic side of politics, we'll move on to this story you, you wanted to cover about Rishi, which is Rishi coming out as tough and we're, we're, we're being told we're getting the real Rishi now. It's going to be the real Rishi if such a thing exists. And he's come out on inheritance tax, HS2 and net zero. And if you look into the detail, it's not anything crazy. It's He wants to reduce the 40% rate of inheritance tax in the March budget, or that's been hinted, that's what it'll do. He's probably going to scrap HS2 because it could cost another 100 billion. And he said that HS2 executives had acted like kids 
with the golden credit card. And he's going to modify the net zero targets, the crazy 2050 targets, which led a certain Donald Trump to comment favorably. The Independent put a very funny classic independent thing. They wrote, Mr. Trump, a climate denier. (laughs) I just love that phrase. It's so ridiculous. Praised Mr. Sunak on his social media site, Truth Social, on Saturday. I always knew Sunak was smart, that he wasn't going to destroy and bankrupt his nation for fake climate alarmists that don't have a clue, Mr. Trump wrote. So he's praised by Trump, but he was attacked by the likes of Al Gore and others who have panicked about his slight reduction of the absurd net zero targets, Toby. Yes, an attack. There was some. There were some blue on blue attacks. So he was um, uh, came in for a bit of stick from Alex Sharma, Zach Goldsmith, and others uh, within his own party, um, both former ministers. Um, I think, um, yeah, as you, as you, I don't think he's decided to scrap HS two. I think well, we don't quite know what he's going to do yet because the announcement has yet to come. Uh, but it sounds like he's going to scrap phase two of HS two. So the northern be, leg. Yeah, yeah, there'll still be high-speed rail connecting, perhaps not Euston with Birmingham, but um, Old Oak, the new HS2 station, which incidentally is about a mile from my house, um, uh, uh, connecting Old Oak to Birmingham. So I think you'll still be able to get to Birmingham on phase one of HS2 in like 2035 or something um, in 40 minutes instead of an hour and a half uh, or an hour and 20 minutes. Um, uh, but but yeah, they're scrapping the bit which will connect Birmingham to Manchester and other points north of Birmingham. Um, well, yeah, and I think a lot of people listening to this, I'm sure, will think that these are, you know, pretty cosmetic changes. Um, he's probably not going to scrap um, inheritance tax either, as you say. He's just going to lower the threshold. Um, uh, sorry, sorry. Um, uh, uh, lower lower the rate of inheritance tax, maybe from you know forty percent to thirty percent or something. Um, and in the case of net zero, he hasn't abandoned any of the net zero targets, which he's legally bound to observe by Theresa May passing the Net Zero Act. Um, uh, what he what he said is we're gonna we're gonna approach these targets slightly more slowly, uh, implying I suppose that we were approaching them more quickly than we needed to. Um, so we're not in any way uh, supposedly um, in breach of the law, which requires various emissions targets to be met in kind of I think something like five year blocks. Um, but we were just meeting those targets too quickly. Um, which is incredible to think. Why on earth would they do that? I mean, trying to meet them by 2050 is ludicrous. Uh, trying to meet them at all is ludicrous. But anyway, um, uh, so what he said is, I mean, the big change is that um, uh, uh, what are called wet cars, petrol and diesel driven cars, new, new wet cars were going to be banned from going on sale from 2030 onwards. Um, and he's pushed that back to 2035. It may seem like, you know, no big deal, nothing much. Um, but in politics, in in the context of kind of Westminster politics, it's a pretty big, uh, pretty big move, pretty bold move. Um, and um, and I guess you know it, it, it seems to be a, a bit of a departure um, from his kind of previous strategy, which is say hey, these are my five pledges. I'm going to meet these five pledges. One of which was do something about the small boats. I think he's realised he's not going to be able to meet those five pledges. Maybe inflation will come down a bit more between now and the election. Um, so he's pivoted to becoming a more slightly more radical, more conservative prime minister. Um, he's going to be a bit more conservative or liberal in the classical liberal sense on tax, a bit more conservative on net zero, um, et cetera. Um, uh, 
but but you know, uh, I think I, I I sort of think um, uh, this is what you know, I, I, as a kind of passionate critic of net zero, I think it would be a mistake to say why bother? You know, either scrap the target or stick to it. This is a tiny cosmetic change. What's the point? Um, I think it's a way. It's it's a step in the right direction. Um, and he's not the only one taking similar steps. So Macron has said that uh, some, I think he's pushed back the year at which all French houses will have to have heat pumps. Um, uh, even Bill Gates has rode back slightly on the way in which he's been trying to kind of prosecute his own climate agenda. There seems to be a general rowing back taking place across the world, almost as if, you know, um, uh, a message has been transmitted from the WEF Politburo to all their kind of political zombies. Um, but nevertheless, I think we, sh- you know, if you're critic as critics of Net Zero, we should welcome this. This is this, I hope, is the beginning of the complete abandonment of the Net Zero project. It can't happen overnight, of course, it can't politically. It has to happen incrementally. Um, but it feels to me as though there's a pivot away from the Net Zero agenda taking place across the West, and that's partly because you know. I think politicians, it's dawning on them that these targets are going to immiserate their populations, make them unpopular, um, make energy prices unaffordable for ordinary people, particularly in the context of the war in Ukraine and Russia, not exporting gas to its European neighbours and so on and so forth. Um, so um, t- to me, this feels like a really good thing, something that we should support Rishi in doing, particularly as he's getting some blue-on-blue opposition. You know, He needs all the support he can get you know, even in the alt media for what is, I think, in in Westminster terms, a pretty bold move. As you say, he's only slowing it down, really. And it reminds me of Michael Malice's quote, conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit. He's really just saying, can we calm down a little bit on some of these ludicrous targets? And it reminds me of that other amusing trend whereby the Conservative Party do some actual conservative things just before the election. I mean, that's what this is, and he's desperate to get elected, and he's so he's trying to do some crowd pleasing things that obviously people want. I mean, HS two, it's less clear where people stand on that, but they certainly won't want to waste a hundred billion if he points out other places we could spend it. Inheritance tax is the most hated tax. It's been called, even though lots of people aren't actually going to pay it, but they think they're going to pay it. So that 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 amounts to the same thing in electoral terms. Yeah, and then net zero is, is, is hated. I mean, I wonder if it even scares them a little bit that people are smashing up ULES cameras and just the hatred of... Because you can immiserate the population so much, can't you? But you've got to get it right because there is a level where they revolt. And, and really, mm-hmm. net zero, if they did do any of the things that are proposed by things like the C40 group, the 44 grams of meat, you know, the, the eight items of clothing a year and the one flight every three years, these things would be proper like revolution level if they'd actually do them. One hopes, but who knows, after lockdowns, people are pretty... Uh, pretty um, what's the word, cowed or apathetic when it comes down to it. But there is a certain level where, you you know, net zero is going to be so unpopular. Yes. Um, uh, It may be that the um, anti-Ulez protesters um, have helped, you know, push Rishi into this new position. Um, I think the motorists are a pretty powerful lobby and um, all these measures uh, and particularly the 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 insistence that no new wet cars can go on sale after 2030 everyone has to switch to either hybrids or avs i mean you can see that being very politically toxic um you know not least because avs 
uh, well, they haven't they haven't got the charging infrastructure in place, um, even with the current level of AV usage. Um, so if more people buy AVs, you know, um, there'll just be massive queues uh, or even longer queues outside charging stations, even more complaints that the charging infrastructure is way behind schedule. Um, uh, yeah, people are very unhappy with when AVs break down, you know, they're absolutely immobile because the batteries weigh so much. Um they, they don't keep their value. You know, sellers of AVs are really unhappy. Um, you know, uh, uh, car, 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 car showroom owners uh, are unhappy because even the AVs sitting on their forecourts are kind of depreciating as they're sitting on the forecourts and they're depreciating by so much they have to constantly kind of lower the price tag even to below what they bought them for. It's not going to make any profit on them at all. So, yeah, I mean, AVs are clearly a bit of a disaster. There's been a real turning away from them. Um, uh, they're no longer the kind of uh, glamorous status symbol they once were. I think all of that helps. And I think, yeah, I think this, I think the kind of, the, the, the popular uprising, the Blade Runners. Actually, maybe we haven't paid enough, enough, enough kind of tribute to the Blade Runners. I feel slightly hesitant because I was quite, I was quite unhappy with Chris Packham praising, um, uh, members of Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil and other extremist environmental protest groups for breaking the law and saying, you know, at some point he envisages he's going to have to break the law because this is a matter of life and death. Some things are just too important. Um, and you kind of think, well, how can, you know, if, if I mean, I'm not, not, not completely opposed to civil disobedience, but if it, if it becomes, you know, too widespread, with people on with people on both sides, who just feel strongly enough about issues breaking the law, then of course you know civil order breaks down. But on the other hand, I do feel tremendous admiration for the Blade Runners who are who are actually taking quite a risk, um, uh, not on their own behalf. I mean, yeah, of course they're going to benefit, I suppose, if they're a driver of a vehicle that's going to be have to pay the the, the ULES charge. But for the most part, that it's a, it's an act of you know public service. You're risking imprisonment. Um, in order to make life easier for members of your community, um, and um, yeah, there, there's something admirable about that. I mean, it's um, it, it's clear, I think, how other people will benefit by their breaking of the law, uh, and the law is clearly an ass in this case, far clearer than it is in the case of you know when Extinction Rebellion break the law. Are they really benefiting anyone? They're just making everyone's lives more difficult. Yeah, and I thought there was a key difference there. I mean, yes, we don't want to necessarily advocate breaking the law, but the key difference was it's on a state-owned news channel or state-owned channel, sorry, Channel 4 that Chris Packham was on with that absurd piece where he was sitting there going, hmm, as I think about, should I break the law? It was this really absurd thing, but the fact that it's state-owned and the fact that that's very much the establishment side, they're basically saying, they're basically advocating Extinction Rebellion in a tacit way. It is a narco tyranny where they're allowed to get away with it, whereas the, the Blade Runners are clearly against the establishment taking a risk, you know, against something Sadiq Khan's bringing in. Do you think that's a meaningful distinction? I mean, this 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 other kind of law breaking is actually being promoted by a state owned broadcaster. Yeah, I think that I think that is a distinction. And I think um, it's clear when um, Extinction Rebellion, Just Up Oil protesters are, you know, when they appear in court, for the most part, they get very lenient sentences or they get let off entirely. Um, so how much of a risk are they taking? Are they breaking the law if the law is never really going to be enforced? Um, in the case of the ULOS protesters, they're obviously taking a far greater risk because that is a law that's going to be enforced. If they find themselves up before a beak, they'll probably get you know custodial sentences.
Yeah. So you, you finished the sentence slightly quicker than I was expecting that. Um, and I was lost in a world of thinking about Blade Runners. Um, do you want to move on and do this next story, which is Woke Whitehall? It's a similar themes. We're talking about domestic politics. And it's a story from Stephen Edgington in The Telegraph. And we all know Whitehall's woke, but it's even more woke than you thought. So the cabinet secretary has been warned by senior civil servants of a woke takeover of Whitehall that risks improperly influencing government policy. Simon Case was told in a letter signed by 42 staff from 16 departments that ideology on gender promoted by trans activists has become embedded in the civil service in a significant breach of impartiality. It says the concept that everyone has a gender identity, which is more important than their sex, is treated as undisputed fact. And I could go on and on. It's pretty shocking. 42, sorry, eight of the 42 signatories are anonymous as they regard it as too dangerous to their careers to reveal their identities. It's nothing we didn't know in a sense, but it's just perhaps one of these even worse than we thought or or it's exposed that it's as bad as we thought. And there was a particularly absurd video that was exposed as well by Steve Edgerton, which is like a kind of woke David Brent situation. If you remember that ridiculous video from The Office on, on sort of, uh, Office procedures and health and safety and so on. There's a absurd video where these trans, where these blokes basically who are dressed up as women, I don't know what, what I can't remember what the correct term is, but trans people who are men are trying to get into the bathroom, the woman's bathroom, and a woman stops and says, hey, what are you doing? You know, I'm not going to let you in here. Are you a pervert? And then he does a weird look at her and sort of wanders off. And it's this ridiculous video. But they're, of course, saying that the woman is the baddie, the one that stops the man getting in the toilet, whereas, of course, she's the hero, really. And did you see the video, Toby? I, I did see it. Yeah, it was extraordinary. I mean, <laughs> it's beyond at parody. first blush, you'd think you'd think, well, the woman is clearly on the right. Um, uh, and when when you when you realised you were supposed to conclude that she was actually in the wrong, should have admitted the man into the women's lose. It was really it was yeah it was it was quite a a head f u c k. Um, so. Um, the frustrating thing about these exposés um, uh, is that um, they don't seem to be make they don't even seem to make a dent in the kind of you know, the the people engaged in the long march through the institutions don't lose so much as a step uh, when the absurdity, um, uh, the extremism of their beliefs are exposed in this way. Uh, I mean, the example I like to give of this is. Um, uh, in 2020, uh, when there was, you know, some concern um, within the Boris government that Whitehall was woke, uh, the nudge unit, which was then part of the cabinet office, isn't anymore, uh, was um, commissioned to do some research, to do an evidence review about the impact of unconscious bias training. Uh, unconscious bias training was absolutely rife within Whitehall. A lot of money and time was being spent on providing civil servants with unconscious bias training in the belief that it would make them less biased. It would reduce discriminatory and prejudiced behavior within Whitehall. Um, And it was sort of um, turbocharged by the death of George Floyd, whether from a drug overdose or suffocation. Um, And um, so the nudge unit sifted through the evidence, did an evidence review and published its findings, which were not only does unco- not only is there no evidence that unconscious bias training reduces discriminatory behaviour, there is some evidence that it increases it. And of course, that's not that shouldn't really come as a surprise. If you racialize a workplace, if you tell white people that they're privileged and black people that they're oppressed, and it was ever thus, and 
even if they try their hardest to change, their unconscious is going to be at work sabotaging their efforts to be better citizens. Of course, that's going to increase discriminatory behaviour and not reduce it. But did that make an make a dent? In, I mean, there was even the, the, the recommendation, I think it was Kemi Badenoch, then the equalities, women and equalities minister, who'd commissioned this piece of research, said on the back of this research, we are going to phase out unconscious bias training within Whitehall. You know, we're going to put an end to this pointless, potentially harmful waste of time and money. And um, it didn't put an end to it in the slightest. You know, a minister, they can, they can be confronted with evidence from a cabinet office, you know, unit. Um, the minister can say, we're going to phase this out. The opposite happened. It's just been ramped up tenfold in the past three years. Um, and, and so the question is, why is the civil service so impervious to this kind of criticism? I mean, maybe because it's not elected, um, but it's not just that. Um, uh, it's partly because um, Jacob Rees-Mogg explained it to me, and Jacob Rees-Mogg did his best to try and um, row back some of the kind of extreme manifestations of wokery within the civil service when he was a member of Boris Johnson's cabinet and didn't get very far. And as he explained it, it's partly because central government lacks the levers to bring about behavioural change within Whitehall. Um, uh, this was this was this dates back to a, a reform Margaret Thatcher made, which was to create the, the make all the uh, Whitehall departments independent legal entities with their own legal personalities. So it makes it harder for the civil service unions to uh, require all their members in different departments to strike if they're independent legal units. I don't quite understand the politics of it. But anyway, Margaret Thatcher introduced this reform in order to make the civil service less susceptible to um, uh, being influenced by hard left trade unions. But the upshot is there are no cent- no levers now that central government, that the cabinet can pull to bring about behavioural change. It, have to, it has to be a battle won by one hill at a time, as it were, because they're all now independent legal entities, which makes it impossible, even if central government says no more unconscious bias training, to get them all to comply with that edict. Um, uh, but the other reason I think it, it would, there was a really good um, little snippet um, from Um, a recent Free Speech Union panel called Is There a Left Way Back from Woke? Can the left rescue themselves from woke capture? Uh, And we had three left-wing people on the panel, and one of them was Alan Sokol, who was originally responsible for the Sokol hoax, which is why the subsequent hoax by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose and others was called Sokol Squared. Anyway, he was the original hoaxer, a kind of anti-postmodernist, um, but a member of the left. He said that one of the reasons wokery has um, made such headway within the professional managerial class, he said, he sort of explained it, he sort of divided the PMC into three different bits, but he said the kind of lower PMC, which is where the bit that most civil servants belong to. He said one of the problems for members of the lower professional managerial class is they're not paid very well. You know, um, uh, often when 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 they meet members of the upper working class you know plumbers electricians they're actually they actually earn more than the members of the kind of lower tier of the professional managerial class so how do they cope with the kind of psychological humiliation of discovering that far less educated people who aren't any by any measure professionals are earning more than them well one way is to cast themselves as their moral superiors you know we are bringing about these important uh, uh, changes in British society. We're protecting the most vulnerable. We're doing our best to 
compensate people for the legacy of white supremacy and colonialism and heteronormativity. And by the way, I'm using those words ironically in inverted commas. I'm not endorsing the thinking. Staving <laughs> off the reviews. Staving <laughs> off of the reviews, though, the critics in the reviews. Uh, but I think, I think that is a large part of it. One reason the civil service, which for the most part is made up of members of the lower professional managerial class, have gone all in on wokery pokery, is it's a way of making themselves feel superior to members of the working class, feel morally superior to people they think of as doing less exalted work, um, uh, but who are paid more than them. Very good point. Yeah, very similar with academics on the lower end, I suppose, as well. Yes, um, he, yeah, he, he, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg, he points out here, attempts to implement reform are blocked by senior civil servants Adding, this obstruction and wokery cannot continue. It is designed quite simply to stop democracy working. So, yeah, it's like you say, though, these things don't make a dent. One reason is for my speaking to the extended blob, as I call them in North London, and people in my football team and so on, is that they basically see the Telegraph as a sort of Nazi pamphlet anyway. I mean, these things tend to break in the Telegraph. We saw the lockdown files broke in the Telegraph. And that's all just within the sort of, oh, that's just the right wing anyway. Of course, they would say that. So yeah, they don't seem to have any impact at all, do they? And it, it is it is sort of depressing. I mean, that video you'd think would have some impact, but I don't know. Let's see. It can all collapse, wokery, very quickly. Do you want to say any more on that, Toby? Because it, I mean, I could say more, but it's, I've got so much printed out, but it's it's almost too big to get into. We have so many topics. And I think basically our listeners understand it anyway. Whitehall's incredibly woke, you know. <laughs> He's going to surprise. Yeah, it was like it's just reading reading the story. It was like a kind of peak woke kind of bonanza, wasn't it? I mean, so much material in there. But yeah, I I don't think we'd be telling our listeners anything they don't already know. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But it was an important story. But let's see what happens. Um, now we've got two interesting stories. I mean, I don't know which one to do first. Maybe we'll do this football focus story. Did you see this one? This was a, this was, it's kind of a sharp turn is why I wasn't sure where to go next, but the viewing figures have massively declined and the BBC blamed the people. This was kind of very amusing. So Dan Walker was the presenter of football focus and then Alex Scott took over. And since Alex Scott took over a woman, for those who are not football fans, uh, the viewing figures have just plummeted. So they went from 849,000 in 2019 to just 564,000 last month. And in classic BBC style, Scott is not being blamed by her bosses, the Mail says, though not being blamed by her bosses, though, and remains highly regarded at the BBC, who are set to give the former England defender a prominent presenting role at next summer's Olympics. So it's a classic BBC thing. Men basically don't want to watch female presenters on men's football, but the BBC go, well, that's because they're wrong. And now some people might say it's not that, it's actually just that, Alex Scott is not a very good presenter, whereas someone like Kelly Cates is actually quite good. And she is quite good. I've watched her on some live shows as well. She's actually genuinely funny. Her wit almost reminded me of me a little bit. She was putting Gary Neville in his place. She's actually quite funny. So maybe it's okay to have women who are good, but very classic BBC that, that they just immediately blame the people. And then it took another turn when Dan Walker got on X and he said, it's hard to see football focus struggling. I loved it growing up and it was an honor to present and I still miss it. We poured everything into that show every week and worked hard to keep it relevant. I hope it stays part of the TV landscape. Translation, 
some broad took over from me and now it's tanking. <laughs> That's basically what he said. Yeah. And then Alex Scott replied just with a gif with a girl looking at a computer, just had drinking that says, interesting. Then she later deleted that. And he replies to that claim, oh, I didn't mean anything bad. You know, that sort of thing. It's like, we know what you meant, Dad. You meant you were good. It's now shit. And that's what you were saying. Any thoughts, Toby? Yeah, I guess in Alex Scott's defense, um, viewing habits have changed uh, since 2019. Um, And I think that people are just becoming increasingly less reliant on um, the BBC or ITV or indeed Sky for their football coverage, Um, particularly commentary. Um, I know in the case of my own children, for instance, um, I quite often watch Match of the Day with them. And we never watch it live. We always watch it about an hour after it started being broadcast. I'm not just saying that to avoid paying the license fee. Um, It's so they can fast forward through the commentary. Even though the commentary is mainly men, um, they just don't want to hear it. They just want to watch the highlights. Um, But um, uh, it's partly because, you know, that kind of mainstream normie commentary is of no interest to them. What they like doing is watching football matches live on Sky Sports and having their favourite YouTube commentators, listening to their favourite YouTube commentators, commenting on the games they're watching on their kind of iPad sitting beside them. Like a watch-along. Sky. Yeah, like a watch-along. Um, so they've got... The, they're, perfectly, they're perfectly willing to listen to, uh, you know, unending reams of commentary they just find the BBC commentators pretty boring, male or female. So I, I think it's, I don't know if it's something that can be, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that Dan Walker, if it was still, you know, just him and his lad, lad mates, I'm not sure its ratings wouldn't have fallen by the same amount. Interesting. Well, certainly Alex Scott has used that defence. She said that it's doing well against, you know, Saturday's show doubled anything on TV, she said. So she's very much using that defence that TV itself is in decline and she's doing relatively well. Uh, I'm sticking with my propaganda that it's it's the women. Um, but I know what you mean, yeah, it's like people like Mark Goldbridge, the Man United guy, there's all these YouTube people now. They want to hear from them rather than some boomers who actually played the game. The problem is with those YouTube people, they didn't actually play the game at any high level. So do they know? This is my problem in general with, with, with women on the men's, on the men's uh, game. Women can be on the women's game. It's a completely different game, really. You know, Especially if they ever did move to smaller goals, you'd see that it really is a different game. But I, my theory on this, Toby, is you can go, you can punch down, but not up. Not punch is the wrong word. But if you're Roy Keane, you've captained one of the great, one of the Man United treble winning side, one of the great football teams of all time, and you're one of the key players. You can basically comment on all football and you can comment on lower football. But if you're someone who hasn't played at the highest level or you've played a completely separate game, which is a women's game, can you really comment on the Man United men's team? I say no. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you're. you're aren't you conceding too much to kind of expertism in making that point? Um, you're sort of arguing that unless you um, have actually experienced what it is you're being asked to comment on, unless you have an intimate knowledge of it as a participant, then really you shouldn't, you shouldn't be commenting on it. Um, and that seems that's a pretty high bar and it would stop us, for instance, commenting about almost anything, wouldn't it? Interesting point. I think I was trying to use it to, to not just make it sound like I just didn't want women commenting on men's football, which was, <laughs> which was the case. But I thought I just was positing a theory. It's funny because I do like the YouTube commentators, so I obviously don't completely back this up. So maybe that's maybe, maybe I should just say, let's just not have women commenting. Because it's a different game. That's the big thing. It is a different game, isn't it? It's a completely different sport, really. 
borderline different yeah, sport. Yeah, but um, I, I mean, I think maybe one of th- there is, I think within within kind of the sports commentary world, there is this kind of constraint that in order to become a sports commentator, you need to have played the particular sport you're commentating on. Um, and that, that creates a kind of limitation, which is one of the reasons I think most sports commentary is so dull. I mean, it, I guess it d- didn't apply to Adrian Childs, I guess. I mean, there are some commentators, but, you know, you can be the presenter. It, you can't be the pundit. You can be the, presenter, the presenter. That's right. You can be the yeah. You, you can't be a pundit. I think that's kind of. I think that maybe that's one of the reasons football pundits are really so boring. Well, Gary Neville's good, isn't he? And Roy Keane's good value because you know he'll just have a dig at someone. And Jerry, Jamie Carragher's not bad. They're, they're not. Yeah, they're, but some there are some terrible the exceptions. Ones. They are yeah. the exception. There are some really boring ones. That is true. The sort of key owned and shearers. Yeah, you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe we should just have the sort of punters mouthing off. It is difficult for them to have that authority, isn't it? Tricky. It's tricky. I'm not one way of looking at it is we people like us can comment, Toby, and because we're in the alternative media, whereas to just be on the actual official, you know, BBC coverage of the World Cup, you have to have played it. Then are we buying into a mainstream media paradigm? I don't know. I'll tell you what, why not there is there are professional gamblers who make a living from sports betting. Um yeah, they know more about the particular sports they make money on than anyone else, including the pundits. Uh, I'm sure you know they 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 they've become masters at, at, at analysing different teams, knowing why some teams win, some teams lose, predicting what's going to happen. They should be the people commentating, um, not you know ex footballers with two brain cells to rub together. I'd love that. I'd like so Gary Lineker. Uh, it'd be like Gary Neville. You you won the treble with Man United. What do you think, Steve? You like a flutter on the horses. What do you reckon? <laughs> Who's going to win this one? Yeah, I mean maybe. It's a, another another little wrinkle is that managers can commentate. Remember when Mourinho was in between jobs and he came on mm. and he was like a really entertaining yeah. pundit. Now he didn't yeah. play the game at a particularly high level. He was okay. He wasn't very that. He was notoriously yeah. not that good. Klopp wasn't that good, but they were top managers. But so they can comment as managers at the top level. So that's another I, it, nuance. It, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? But you make that 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 kind of prompts another point, which is for the most part, managers are drawn from. The kind of pool of ex-footballers. It's almost like a guild, isn't it? Like you want to commentate, you have to be a, an ex-footballer. You want to manage, you have to be an ex-footballer. It's almost like you know a protect a, a protection racket. You know, I'm sure that many people who haven't played football would both be better commentators and better managers. There was that guy who's managing that team in France, isn't there? Who 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 did really well playing a video game? Football um, manager. I was about to say that football he manager, was the yeah. exception. That could be a new yeah. precedent. You've just got really good at football manager. Yeah. Or you're yeah, really you're not? really good at FIFA. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can beat Gary Lineker at FIFA. Therefore, I know more about football than him. And I should be presenting match of the day. It might happen in future. You've just got to win a lot of uh, coaching badges and things, haven't you? You've got to do all your badges. Maybe maybe that'll happen more in future. Because you do have to be smart. But it's not that many footballers that are smart enough to do it. You know, they're good at playing, but they don't have the emotional control or the, the intelligence to run basically a massive company is a different kind of mind, isn't it? Mm, mm. So a, a few do like Mourinho and they're rarely the best players. Although in the case of Pep Guardiola, they were he was also a top player. So anyway, this might be alienating some of our listeners. We should have blokes corner where we talk about <laughs> like, or sports sports corner. <laughs> We've got so many corners now. Somebody, somebody even suggested we do culture corner. That would be controversial. I get some stick from the old London calling fans. Some of the nastiest comments I've had have been from London calling listeners. So you, you had a few... Bad eggs listening to that show, I've got to say, as well as many good people. Good people on both sides, but there was some... Uh, some I real... probably weren't bad eggs. They're probably just, you know, so attached to 
the line and calling format, they they find it irritating when we sort of you know pay tribute to it by doing similar bits. Well, they just love you and, and hate me is one another way of putting it. There's one person that insulted me so badly. I'm not even going to read the review because it put, it put it in someone's head. They were insulted my appearance. They used the, some of the worst possible insults you can use about someone. It, it was so horrific. I'm not even going to read it out because it'll put it in it's people's probably head. Probably because they've seen, they've, 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 you know, they've, they've noticed how you've um, overreacted to um, negative feedback. And so they're, they're trying to provoke you. Yeah, well, it won't work. It won't work because I'm now unboxing. So I'm... I've got total emotional control in the ring. I'm mean, smashed up my knuckles and my right wrist is is knackered. But I've, I'm you can't phase me now. With with now I've been punched in the face and I got the ball kicked in my face last week at football. And I've won three matches in a row this season in my five aside team. So you, you can't really phase me anymore, Toby, because I'm I've become okay. under such pressure. I'm being used to you know being in the ring. <laughs> I've literally done like three <laughs> boxing sessions. I don't know what I'm talking about. But yeah, I'm on a different comment level now. now on a- World heavyweight title bout. Exactly. You have the I've experience. got an iron mind. Um, and here's another story about men and women that really bothered me. It was Jeff Norcott on Politics Live. And he was making a good point. He was raising the issue of male suicide under 50. He has a new book out about blokes. And he's a blokey bloke. But he, he makes some really good points. And he was interrupted by Ava Santina, who is the politics correspondent for Joe Politics, or something like that. And... Francis O'Grady, a Labour peer and former big union person, which you'll be able to explain more clearly. And they both chipped in with some appalling comments. Jeff Norcott was talking about more men, you know, men were more susceptible to dying of COVID. And Ava Santina was like, yeah, but women were doing the laundry. It was like a mad, kind of insane point. And later, Francis O'Grady said, yeah, but what about sexual assault? And what about the pay gap, the mythical female pay gap? And Jeff kept saying, yeah, it's all well and good. I'm not against any of that. But what about... I'm talking, this, is, this segment is about men. And it was so incredible, the aggressive whataboutery. They couldn't let it lie. And just and the idea of male suicide was so appalling to them, not the actual suicide, but that it should be given a minute to be discussed. And just for context, it was about whether there should be a minister for men. And it was very similar to how Jess Phillips laughed at that idea in the past, openly, scornfully laughed at it. It was one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen on mainstream TV. And that's a pretty high bar. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, it was quite surprising um, how defensive the women on the panel became. Well, um, Ava Santini and Frances O'Grady became just at the mere suggestion that there should be a minister for men. And Jeff Norcott put the case about as mildly as he could have done. He didn't say, I think there should be a minister for men. He merely pointed out that there were some problems that men were suffering from, which might need to be addressed in a bespoke way, making that, you know, that's the same argument as to why there's a minister for women. There might be political solutions for problems which are afflicting just men. Uh, But he was saying, let's discuss it. He wasn't saying, I'm completely persuaded by this. Let's appoint a minister for men. But merely running it up the flagpole in that quite mild way provoked these women into these kind of hysterical, defensive reactions. Um, And you know, it was extraordinary. He wasn't saying there should there should be a minister for men, but not a minister for women. He wasn't saying that men's problems are more important than women's problems. He was merely saying that there are some problems which are unique to men, such as the fact that there's uh, men are much more likely to die from suicide than women, and suicide is the highest cause of death, I think, for men under 50. You know, these are some pretty big problems that society ought to be concerned about. And 
perhaps one way of addressing them would be to appoint a minister for men. You could think about how to address them. Um, but 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 he wasn't saying in any way we should downplay problems which uniquely afflict women. But that's how they heard it. And even when he repeatedly said that he wasn't suggesting women's women didn't have problems too, and he wasn't saying there shouldn't be a minister for women, and even when Damien Green, the ex-cabinet member on the panel, made the same point, it just didn't land. The women just heard it as there should be a minister for men, not a minister for women, because men's problems are much worse than women's problems. It was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. And it's quite amusing that you use the term hysterical there, kind of Victorian. I know. I <laughs> immediately regretted it. I'm not going to be. <laughs> they had a fit of nerves and they came over all faint and then died of a broken heart. It was, um, yeah, it was just a funny word. But no, absolutely, Toby. It was, it was really insane. And it's as if they've been poisoned by ideology and their own trendy talking points or just hate. I don't, I don't know. They've been programmed by the culture to just hear that and then say, oh, women stuff. It's like they've lost their humanity because they're so programmed by this ideology of sort of 21st century feminism. It's really appalling how, how someone ends up like that and just doesn't think and just has lost and doesn't empathize. I thought it was really sick. I guess the, 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 the just thinking about why it was, mm. is it because their particular political agenda requires them to cast women as victims and in particular as victims of men so anyone trying to cast men as victims as well um, even if even if they're just asking for kind of parity in victimhood status um, is immediately going to be attacked by them because the reason women are victims is because men are the oppressors. So if you cast men as victims too, then you undermine that narrative and make it harder for them to portray women as victims. Yeah, you upend the woke hierarchy of intersectionalism and, and so on. Yeah, their the, the ideology immediately abhors it. It was very, but very strange to watch that play out, wasn't it? And I admit to being particularly affected by it, perhaps because I've been affected like so many of us have, by male suicide. I mean, my cousin killed himself age 17. It was my only male cousin. I only had three cousins, and it was a small family. It devastates the family completely. I've seen what it does. I mean, I still have dreams about it 20 years later. It's a horrific thing, and it's such... And So I was extra just disgusted by their attitude because men are dying because of these attitudes, or, or they're certainly not getting the help that they need because of it. Now, not that I'm saying that we should all talk because the best we could have hoped for from that discussion was was sort of vaguely posited by Frances O'Grady that, yeah, you know, yeah, maybe men do need to talk more, but we, she then said we have the pay gap. But even the first part I reject, which is that the solution is not actually men becoming women and becoming more touchy-feely. We talked about this before. That's not the solution mm -hmm. either. There may be other solutions to do with men having more respect in the culture, perhaps men getting together in men's groups, perhaps playing football once a week like I did. There are all kinds of solutions that don't involve men becoming women, and but they also don't involve undermining men and saying they have no problems. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's... Um, I think you've cited the... Jeff Norcott cited the suicide statistic, which, as you say, is, um, is really alarming. Um, but there are other, you know, um, uh, statistics which, which, which seem to indicate that um, we are no longer living in a kind of patriarchal society. Um, so, yes, there's the gender pay gap, but there are all kinds of explanations for that, which, um, uh, which explain it 
without having to appeal to discrimination against women. Um, so, for instance, um, men are much more likely to die in the workplace than women. Men are much more likely to be imprisoned than women. I mean, men outnumber women in the prison population by a ratio of something like 25 to 1. Um, men are much more likely to reoffend than women. Men are much more likely to be unemployed than women. There's an achievement gap within GCSEs, uh, which in turn has a knock-on effect on applications to universities. So many more women now go to university than men do. Um, it's as though our society is designed to give every kind of opportunity to women. It's the opposite now of a patriarchy. And that's why men are struggling across all these dimensions. Now, of course, they still have advantages in some. Um, uh, but um, I think once you begin to cite some of this data, professional feminists get quite unnerved because it suggests that, you know, it isn't all going our way. It's not complete. It's not as one sided um, as they like to portray. You know, it's a more nuanced picture and they don't like that because their whole position depends upon portraying victim, women as victims of kind of patriarchal oppression. No, that's absolutely it. Yeah. And I've, I've probably been beating around the bush a bit because I was so uh, angry. But yeah, that's exactly it. They, it's, not just that they, it's not just that they want to obfuscate or they can't, they, they experience cognitive dissonance. It's perhaps just simply that they want to keep the status quo, the feminized world we have. And they, it's, they see it as a very simple threat to their power, basically. You know, not just their narrative, but actually they want to maintain their power. And like, oh, no, if this starts to get a hold in the culture, we'll lose our complete control of the culture, which is we are in a completely feminist culture or feminized culture. It's absurd to say that it's a patriarchy. Uh, men can't do anything. I mean, men can't men can't have a pub scrap without ending up in prison. Men should be able to have a pub scrap and it shouldn't be a big deal in any normal culture. And look at on a fundamental level, the way we can't differentiate between necessary male violence and destructive male violence. So the example the other week I gave was the police all handing in their guns or some of them handing in their guns because they feel they can't use them now. These are police who are permitted to use deadly force, but they feel they can't because that recent case, they'll just be up in front of a jury. They'll go to prison or whatever. So they can't even do their job. We saw it with Daniel Penny in America, stopped a violent predator on the subway. He's the one that's in trouble for manslaughter. We see it with the whole defund the police movement. Our culture and all of Western culture believes that masculinity is inherently bad. So we can't differentiate between, oh, these are the good men that are needed to stop the bad men. And I said it with that Democrat woman who said dismantle the police in Minnesota, then got assaulted. So that's what you'll have. You'll have anarchy, chaos and assault because you won't, you can't acknowledge that there are good men and you can't acknowledge, I mean, the feminist culture hates this, the idea of necessary male threat of violence, at least to keep things in order. But that is the case in every society. So once you get rid of that, you're living in a d delusional world. But and by the way, Tristan Tate replied to my uh, post about this, Jeff. And all thing. I know people love it when I mention Tate saying he would be the men's minister. But the reason that's relevant is Andrew Tate's very relevant to this as well. Of course, that's why you have people like Andrew Tate coming up. The mainstream is going to have to finally reckon with masculinity. And we see little examples like the Jeff Norcott clip and like Caitlin Moran's pathetic attempt to reckon with it. By the way, Francis O'Grady and Ava Santina, they shouldn't be talking about masculinity anyway because they don't know anything about it. So I would even, don't even want to hear their views on it. And they certainly shouldn't be shutting it down. They should just be listening in that case. And I'd just like to finally add that Scott Adams said something really provocative about Andrew Tate 
He said, being a Democrat in 2023 means TikTok is raising your daughters and Andrew Tate is raising your sons. And he, he also said it again. He said, the Matrix is trying hard to prevent Andrew Tate from raising your sons, but it isn't working. He's totally raising your sons. So he's using this now to wind them up. And say, and that's true, though, that many young men are influenced. 52% of men, 16 to 17-year-old, have a positive impression of Andrew Tate, only 19% negative. And that was from a BBC hit piece against Tate. And the reason I have that stat memorized is I'm doing a, a talk on Tate at the upcoming Battle of Ideas. So I'll be making my Tate is like Brexit point. And he is because the men have decided, the people have decided they like Tate. So it doesn't matter how many hand-wringing pieces you write in The Guardian or in The Spectator, because conservative commentators don't like him either, the men have decided masculinity is coming back in rebellion against this feminized culture. And just lastly, like you say, poor white boys are the least likely to go to university. So men are oppressed, men and boys are oppressed across the entire culture. What do you think? Yes, I think um, I think that's broadly right. Um, and I, I'm not sure if you were saying this, but um, I think the reason, as we've discussed before, that Andrew Tate has um, become so influential um, amongst particularly adolescent males is because so few other people in the culture are standing up for men. Um, if, if, if the entire culture demonizes masculinity, then someone who comes along and says, actually, you know, the men may have some redeeming features. Um, uh, even if they say a lot of other stuff, um, which seems to play into the hands of people who want to portray masculinity as fundamentally toxic, um, nonetheless, that's going to give you an extraordinary platform just because everyone else is demonizing masculinity. Um, the people who want to um, counter Tate's influence um, shouldn't be kind of, you know, um, soy boys or feminists um, encouraging men to become more like women. Um, uh, I don't mean changing sex. I mean crying a lot and talking about their feelings. Um, if you want to counter the influence of people like Tate, you need some people who are actually going to perhaps be a little bit more mainstream, um, pra praise men, make the case for masculinity, make the case for a more equitable relationship between men and women, a more equal sharing of responsibility and status instead of just trying to force them um, into a kind of cultural ghetto. Absolutely. And speaking of that, on my other podcast, The Current Thing, I've got Will Nolan coming up, who was sacked from Eton for his lecture on masculinity and is very much in the male space now. I've got Jack Donovan who wrote The Way of Men. So I'm, I'm leaning into that theme on my other podcast and ranting about it on this podcast. But um, so that was the Jeff Norcott. I urge you to watch the whole clip if you can find it from Politics Live 25th September. It's really shocking and disturbing. And I think we've covered it pretty well. And speaking of men becoming more like women, um, we had this bizarre story about Eternal. So the band Eternal, I think they were a little before, not before your time, so sort of after your time. They were very much of my era, 1992 sort of era. They, they had some uh, hits like Stay and various things. And, and they, were, they were, you know, one of these pop bands from a simpler time. And they were known to be quite Christian as well. And that, that's relevant here because Vernie and Esther of Eternal have refused to do pride events for the proposed Eternal reunion, saying that they've been hijacked by the trans movement. And they were Christian, but also Vernie's a smart person. She's a lawyer now as well. So she's just very smart. And they've looked at it and gone, no, we're not having any piece of that. We don't want any part of that. But that has led to a rift where Louise Redknapp, formerly Nerding, and Kelly, the other one in Eternal, 
have gone the trans way. And so now the re- whole reunion's off and they've had this split over this issue with Louise very much taking the regime stance and Vernie and Esther taking the, the much more brave, smarter stance. And it even led to Louise posting the hideous progress pride flag with the words always and forever, which is one of their songs with a heart. And I just think what a bizarre and twisted world we're in when essentially bubblegum pop stars are compelled to post grotesque ideological symbols that represent, to me, an assault on women and children. But that is where we're at, Toby. Yeah. Um, Yeah, she's thought to be the moderate um, sitting firmly within the Overton window. And the two heretical band members are now being cast as extremists, where actually... um, the opposite is true. Um, yeah, it was. It was a. I thought a weird overreaction um, to what were fairly. I mean, the criticism was: we don't want to play at um, any pride events um, because we think pride has been um, hijacked by the trans rights lobby. Um, I think it's hard to argue with that. I mean, um, uh, it, it, and actually holding up the flag, which now contains. The pride symbol is almost evidence of, of that happening. Um, but, you know, we see again and again at pride marches, um, trans rights activists um, kicking off, um, you know, kicking out lesbian women or gay men that don't sign up to the trans rights agenda. Um, so I don't think there can be much argument that, um, you know, um, pride as a movement um is certainly dominated, if not completely owned by uh, trans rights activists. Uh, but if you make if you make that point and you say, you know, um, I don't want to play at these events because I don't endorse the TRA agenda, that's not an anti-pride comment necessarily. Um, you're not criticising the entire LGBTQ plus alphabet community. You're just saying there's this bit I don't agree with. Um, uh, and um, it, why that should have, why then Louise Redknapp and her, bandmates should have reacted in this way struck me as you know pretty disproportionate um couldn't they have had a conversation about it did they have to have this argument in public it reminded me of a comment actually someone made recently which is that um within the that they described the culture war over trans rights the war between tras and gc feminists as a civil war within the professional managerial class and that strikes me as right. And even though eternal maybe aren't kind of exactly what you'd think of as members of the professional middle class, a professional managerial class, they're sort of, you know, adjacent to it. Um, and uh, and this is, you know, it, it is a civil war, isn't it? And, and, and to see four members of a band fall out with two taking one side, two the other, ex- illustrates the extent to which it is a civil war amongst people of a very similar mind and very similar attitudes generally signed up to the progressive agenda. You're right. That is a, a sort of beautiful illustration of it. You could say with Eternal, the sisters being Christians, maybe they were already on the other side a bit, maybe. but they certainly were very sort of pro-gay and recognizing their audience was mainly gay. 98% of Louise's audience is said to be gay. I don't know where they got the stat from. But yeah, you're right. It is it is a civil war. And I've always said that, you know, trans the trans movement comes from an extension of feminism more than, a, than the opposite to it. Some was... Some would disagree with me on with, with that, and uh, maybe I won't say anyone's name. But I was at the House of Lords at an event, and some people were disagreeing with me on that. But that's my stance. But yeah, I think it's I think it's an, a war between, like you say, members of the same broad group. And I suppose it just depends whether you think it's a good or bad thing. 
I don't think anyone's denying that the progress pride you know, that trans has taken it over. It's just that half of them are saying that's bad and the other half are saying that's good. But yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I did, did trans, well, it, the, the trans rights movement might not have happened without the women's rights movement. Um, but I'm not sure you can blame feminists for, you know, um, their kind of unruly children, as it were, um, behaving badly. <laughs> Any more you could blame. It's always right to blame parents. Well, the argument goes broadly that once you say women can be like men, they can be in the army, they can have be CEOs, whatever it is, whatever it is, and you take away the traditional role of a woman, child rearing and so on, you say, no, no, we're basically just other men. So then you, and the ultimate logic is, well, why can't they just literally be men? That, that's one of the arguments. But yeah, it's a debate. It's much like the did wokeness come from liberalism or, or is it the opposite to liberalism? But the fight is more often between gender critical feminists and trans women, i.e. men who um, identify as women rather than women who identify as men. And it's more that it's more that I think that, um, well, it's partly as as we know, it's partly a kind of um, sexual peccadillo um, being what's it called? Auto gynophobic, mm. whereby you become turned on sexually by dressing Gross. up as a woman. Um, uh, but it's also partly because, isn't it, that um, men are jealous of the status that women enjoy in our society. Um, they, 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 they find being men so difficult, they struggle so much with their own masculine identity that they want to enjoy some of the kind of perks, some of the status that women enjoy, and that partly does, you know, does is testimony to the success of the women's movement. Uh, but on the other hand, they also want to kind of. It's almost as though they haven't abandoned quite their male identity, and they are dressing up as women in order to fight the feminists on their own turf and claw back some of the rights feminists have won um, by pretending to be women to make it more difficult for the feminists to fight them. I mean, in some ways, you could say they were kind of. You know, um, uh, they were the kind of elite shock troops of the manosphere, kind of uh, <laughs> trying to trying to trying to kind of you know um, claw back some of the um, power that feminists have won um, through fifty years of struggle. Yeah, on their own turf was presumably not a deliberate pun there, but um, yeah, we, we proved in the last story that that women run the society and have all the perks. So yeah, and we've talked before about the perks of insults, haven't we? With that story about whether you can call a woman a wank or whatever, or a trans person a wank. We've talked about that before. So, yeah, they want the perks. But I just find, I've just never found it convincing. I found it a useful weapon, the turfs used to call it misogyny, right? It's a useful word because everyone hates men. And the worst thing you can be is a misogynist. They throw around the word the trans movement is misogynist. I think that's a very useful tool, but I've never found it convincing as an origin of where the trans movement comes from. It comes from leftism. It could come from an extension of feminism. It comes certainly from wokeism and progressivism. The idea that suddenly it comes from, what, like misogynist conservatives, for example, or something like that. It is it just not, there might be some misogynist outcomes, yeah. like there's a man suddenly in the changing room, but that's not the genesis of it. It's impossible. I, I, think, I think where feminists do have to own some responsibility for transgenderism is because for decades, um, they've maintained that gender is a social construct. There are no biological That's what I meant about differences the army. between men and women. Um, uh, but if you think that, you know, it's almost as though the trans rights activists are 
pushing that idea to its logical conclusion and saying, okay, if gender isn't a social construct, then sex is, or if gender is a social construct, then so is sex. Sex is a social construct too. There's nothing to prevent me changing sex, just as there's, just, just as, just as, you know, there's no biological basis to gender differences. Um, uh, although they have kind of reversed positions on that. I think the, um, uh, so the feminist position is gender is a social construct, but sex is is um, uh, rooted in biology. Um, uh, whereas I think the the kind of extreme trans position is that sex is a social construct, but gender is biologically influenced. Uh, and often one, part of the case for why they feel they've been born in the wrong body is that they claim they've got gendered brains. They were born with a female brain in a man's body and they've got sort of a female soul. Somehow their essence is female and they're sort of, it's like a kind of, you know, they're making the same reductionist arguments that the feminists would criticize, you know, defenders of um, the idea that there are biological differences on average between men and women psychologically. Anyway, it's, it's certainly very complicated, but I very much feel on the side of the GC feminists in this particular battle. Did you see that um, uh, in the the latest British social attitudes survey, um, the kind of the the, the, the the headline finding is that on all on virtually every culture war issue, um, the British public have shifted to the left in the past three years. So it was last done in twenty nineteen. More recently, it was done in twenty twenty two. But on the trans issue, they've supposedly become less liberal because people are now um, more prejudiced against trans people than they were, or they're less sympathetic to gender self-ID than they were. Um, but actually, I think that's a kind of a misconstrual of the finding because siding with the gender critical feminists over the trans rights activists in this particular conflict does not make you illiberal. That's kind of allowing the TRAs to kind of frame the discussion. It's 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 conceding too much ground. Yeah, we did that story. I have it somewhere. I can't find it. We did that story on headliners, and it was massive cell phone from it was either the Independent or the Guardian saying like, "Oh, it's weird how they become less liberal on this." It's like, yes, because you've obviously exposed the problem there, then haven't you? That that it's not about liberalism and that there's something going really wrong here. One of the, one of the things was the idea you can just assign your own gender at the, on the birth certificate, or you know, it shouldn't be assigned at but People have massively reduced their belief on that because they've seen what it entails. They've seen the extremism and just hideous nature of the trans movement, and they've gone, oh, what's all this about? Yeah, so it, it completely it's self owned. They go, oh, why have they become less liberal on this? Well, obviously, there's, cause there's something wrong and illiberal about it. So, yeah, there's anti there, itself. There's, there's, there's been one other trans story in the news this week, or probably more than one, but one that I noticed, which is that um, uh, there's been. Um, a bit of criticism of the Office for National Statistics um, who carried out the uh, most recent census. And the most recent census for the first time included a question to try and identify what percentage of the population is trans. And the headline figures were 0.2% are trans women and 0.2% are trans men, I think, something like that. Um, and um, turns out that that, might, that, that may be a wild exaggeration, um, because as several people have pointed out, um, most notably Michael Biggs, who's a sociology professor, I think, at Oxford, um, if you drill down into the um, uh, 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 census data, 
the areas supposedly with the highest concentrations of trans people are the areas with the highest concentrations of people who's, who have English as a second language, i.e. very high recent migrant populations. Like Newham, for instance, of all the boroughs in London, had the highest trans population, higher even than Brighton. Um, and um, uh, why is that? Well, according to Michael Biggs and others, it's probably because the respondents simply didn't understand the question. They were so unfamiliar with the idea of sex assigned at birth and the idea that your sex today could differ from your sex assigned at birth that they just answered randomly. And it turned, so that's why you have a much, so it's possible that actually the percentage of people who yeah. are trans is even lower yeah. than, you know, 0.4% or whatever the Even lower. Is. And we have covered that before. It must be an update on it because you've made that point before about the language barrier. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's probably even lower. Amazing that holding the whole culture to hostage, such a tiny percentage. But yeah, all right, well, we, we've done a lot on that. And I, by the way, the gender critical feminists, I do obviously back them on the changing rooms and the sporting issue, but it's a temporary alliance. And once that's won, the patriarchy is coming back. And, and it's not going to be as nice as last time because we've had enough, but that's that's for the future. Um, Toby, do you want to do our advert quickly? Yeah. So this is an ad from our loyal, steadfast uh, sponsor, Thor Holt. Uh, and I should say that it's um, Thor's 50th birthday today. And he did actually ask if Nick and I could sing him a duet of happy birthday. And um, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen, Thor. Um, uh, I haven't even asked Nick, to be honest. But And even though he does have a lovely singing voice, um, I'm not sure he'd do that. But uh, I'm very happy to um, uh, read out your most recent ad. Uh, so, numbing out on Netflix and nachos, misplaced your mojo, squandered your chance to make your mark. On the contrary. Now is your perfect time. Instead of numbing out, choose action. Take that call with Thor, a significantly less cool version of Harvey Keitel's legendary cleanup man, Mr. Wolf of Pulp Fiction fame. Thor will help you rejuvenate your current reality, no matter how blood splattered or hopeless. Energy professional Diane from Aberdeen said, I called Thor at a time when the negativity was pouring in and the ship had lost its moorings. I will always be grateful for the reset and I will recommend Thor to others without hesitation. Writer Caroline from Melbourne was in a career funk, connected with Thor on LinkedIn and after her initial free coaching call fed back, Thor, thanks so much for the call. You really lifted my spirits. Tech CEO Dan from London says, I'm starting to think of Thor as my secret weapon. Now it's your turn. WhatsApp Thor on plus four four zero seven nine zero six three two one five nine three or connect with Thor on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. And you can set up your initial free call. Netflix and Num can wait 30 more minutes. That's plus four four seven nine zero six three two one five nine three if you want to WhatsApp Thor. And happy birthday, Thor. Happy birthday, Thor, and thanks for the ad. All right, now let's do our occasional section. It's Across the Pond. And we're going across the pond and a little bit north this week to Canada, where I'm sure you've noticed, and you were probably thinking, when are they going to cover this? Well, I've put it in Across the Pond. It's a big story, though. And the independent of all people, 
actually have a very amusing headline about it, and it's Canadian Parliament accidentally honors Nazi. <laughs> That's an amazing headline. How do you accidentally honor a Nazi? Well, it can be done. Yaroslav Hunker, 98, was sitting in the gallery when he was described as a Ukrainian hero and a Canadian hero to applause from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and President Vladimir Zelensky. So the House Speaker then had to apologize when it turned out that Hunker had served in the 14th Waffen-SS Grenadier Division, a voluntary unit made up mostly of ethnic Ukrainians under Nazi command. And then it was obviously a massive story, ridiculous for Trudeau. And he then came out and did this kind of non-apology. He said the Speaker has acknowledged his mistake and has apologized. Notice Trudeau doesn't apologize. But this is something that is deeply embarrassing to the Parliament of Canada and by extension to all Canadians. He added, I think it's going to be really important for us to push back against Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation, and continue our steadfast and unequivocal support for Ukraine. So somehow Russian disinformation got in there, uh, maybe because they're going to use this or whatever. I don't know, or just randomly throw it, throwing it in there to deflect. Absolutely amazing. Something, there's something perfect about the woke Trudeau ending up applauding a Nazi. Somehow it's the final logic of woke to call everyone a Nazi, then end up applauding a literal Nazi. And it does make me reconsider one thing, Toby, which is when he called the truckers Nazis, turns out he just meant they deserved a standing ovation. Maybe we misjudged <laughs> you after all. What do you think? Yeah, he's, it, as you say, it feels like the final nail in Trudeau's coffin. Um, uh, and uh, I can't see him winning the next general election in Canada. May even step down like um, Jacinda Ardern did, I guess, depending on his poll ratings. But um, yeah, humiliating cell phone by Trudeau um, and his party. Um, quite extraordinary. Uh, and as, you know, as, as his own comment uh, implies, they've effectively handed um, uh, Putin an, an absolute gift. I mean, you know, part of the um, uh, uh, Putin-esque propaganda for invading Ukraine is that Ukraine had been um, uh, taken over by Nazis. And they needed to denazify uh, this neighboring country. And Zelensky was a Nazi. And, um, you know, seemingly quite a far-fetched, not very credible um, bit of disinformation. Didn't seem like it came out of, you know, their best disinformation bot farm. Um, uh, but here's Trudeau giving credence to that ludicrous narrative um, by applauding um, a literal Nazi as a Ukrainian war hero. Um, so, yeah, just um, really quite extraordinary mistake, um, but also hilarious um, because because Trudeau's such a chump. It's as if in their year zero mania, thinking that Russia had always been bad, they couldn't conceive the idea that sometimes we were allies with Russia at other points in history, you know, and it wasn't all that clear cut that Russia's always been evil. Maybe, I mean, how could they be so stupid? It's incredible, really. Because, and as Simon Evans pointed out when we covered it last night on the headliners, there aren't that many surviving Nazis around. Like, this guy's 98. Yeah. You had to really search for this guy. You know what I mean? A tough booking to get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's odd that he, I guess, you know, he, he I guess he, he, he lives in Canada now. I think he lives in the same district as the Speaker of the House. Um, uh, and it was the Speaker of the House, I think, who, um, invited uh, him, paid tribute to him. Um, right. Maybe he invited him. Yeah, Do you reckon they were mates? Like was... they've been just hanging out for ages, playing dominoes, <laughs> playing golf. and didn't realize all this time. When you said you were in the war, you could... <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't realized you meant the other side. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, 
the funny thing is, you're saying Trudeau's going to go. He seems to he seems to sort of just bounce off these things. I mean, he he, he said he admired China's basic dictatorship. He basically financially crippled his own working class when they protested with the truckers, you know, by freezing their accounts. And he seems to be able to just get away with anything. I mean, if this happened in England or Britain, it feels like our political world is so small and our country is so small. This just is immediately you're, you're resigning over this. But it feels like he can, I mean, he would have resigned already if this was England, I feel like. How is he even su- surviving this? But it seems like he yeah, might. He, he, he brushed off the whole blackface yeah. embarrassment, didn't he? Um, but I think I think I think one of the reasons he's survived to date is because the opposition has been quite disorganised. But um, the Conservatives now have a very impressive leader in the form of what Pierre Pierre Polyevre. Polyevre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's um, who Dan Hennan described as the most impressive Conservative leader in the world. Uh, slightly disloyal to his own party leader, um, mm-hmm. but. Um, I think he is very impressive. He seems to be just a natural politician. He's been in politics, um, you know, since he was a teenager, I think. Um, He's a brilliant debater. He's in all the right places, on all the positions we care about and people should care about. Um, So, yeah, I think uh, it looks like he's nailed on to win. Um, And Trudeau's either going to resign or go down fighting. Okay. Well, that is that story covered. I mean, it's a big story, but it's almost... Not much more to say about it because it's just so absurd on the face of it. And that is the whole story. Um, amazing that it happened. Brilliant. Now let's go over to you and Will with the top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones to talk about some of the top stories of the week. Will, the first story you wanted to talk about this week is um, what looks like a sort of U-turn by the head of the UK Health Security Agency, Dame Jenny Harry's is that how you pronounce it? Is it Harris or Harry's? Anyway, she said that next time there's a pandemic, um, Britain should behave more like Sweden. That was a bit of a bolt from the blue. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is a, a bit of a, a bit of a surprise. A sign of latest sign of a, of a climb down uh, from the public health establishment and the advisors. This is uh, the head of the UK uh, HSA, Health Security Agency. That's the uh, organisation that replaced uh, Public Health England (PHE), which had uh, took a leading role in the pandemic uh, in 2020. And she has, uh, in an interview with the Telegraph, Paul Newkey, has basically said that yeah, next time we're going to be more like Sweden. So is this a tacit acknowledgement or even a, a, a an explicit? acknowledgement that Sweden got it right. And after all that, and after all the, the defence of the, the UK's extreme uh, reaction, the lockdowns, that actually not locking down was the right approach. That's what it looks like, doesn't it? Yes. Um, and I suppose, you know, about time too. Um, someone pointed out to me the other day, and I think this is accurate, that Anders Tedniel, Tedniel, um, uh, the um, what was his title? What was his title? In he was the chief epidemi- epidemiologist for the um, to Swedish government. So for the Swedish government, uh, did he and did he did he not run some kind of public health agency as well? Because he had some autonomy, didn't he? Which is one of the reasons Sweden didn't lock down in 2020. Anyway, he was being interviewed on the BBC um, in 2020. And the BBC journalist was interrogating him and saying, wasn't he taking an enormous risk by refusing to lock down? Um, Didn't he have an obligation as a steward of public health to mitigate the risk of um, 
lots of deaths from COVID. And he he said, no, I think that actually we won't have any more deaths in Sweden than you do in the UK. In fact, I think we'll have fewer. Um, I'm prepared to take that risk. I think you're taking a bigger risk than we are. Uh, and that actually it seems obvious to me that your measures to try and mitigate the impact of the pandemic will actually cause more harm than they prevent, whereas mine will reduce harm. Um, and uh, if you don't believe me, why don't we come back and revisit this in a couple of years' time when, you know, the dust has settled, the pandemic's over, and we have the data in front of us about number of COVID deaths per capita, and we can compare who got it right, me or the UK government. And the, and the BBC interview apparently agreed to this um, uh, gambit. Um, uh, but then, of course, um, Anders has not been invited back on by the BBC um, since, uh, which is a shame. I was thinking that perhaps the Daily Skeptic should organise some kind of tribute dinner for Anders Tenniel in London in the Guild Hall and present him with a kind of Daily Skeptic medal or something like that. Um, I don't think he's been sufficiently acknowledged um, yet. Um, That's a didn't brilliant he idea, accept Toby, a yeah. job from the WHO, but then the WHO rescinded it? Yeah, yeah, there was something to that he, he he announced he was moving on, and then and and then it, and it fell through. It was all a bit murky, uh, unclear what happened there. But uh, one of our one of the Daily Skeptic readers went to visit him in uh, in Sweden, and uh, he was very gracious, received him, had a nice had a nice drink with him, and uh, and was written up. Well, it was quite a while ago now, a year or so back. Uh, but uh, he, he seems to be enjoying his retirement, so I don't think we need to to worry about him. Uh, and obviously, very satisfying to know that he was right and the world was wrong. Yep. Um, so um, the second story you wanted to talk about um, is a story about the measles outbreak in London, I think it is, uh, which apparently has is overblown. There isn't actually a risk of a measles epidemic breaking out in London this winter. Yeah, another yeah. This this so-called measles outbreak in London. BBC News on earlier in the month, a couple of weeks ago, reported that a, war, a measles warning outbreak could hit tens of thousands. It declared, and uh, if you read the article, it said mathematical calculations. You should be very suspicious of this. That's another. That's a euphemism for modelling, of course. Mathematical calculations suggest an outbreak could affect between forty thousand and one hundred sixty thousand people. However, if you read on a little bit further, you discover that so far this year, there have been a total of 128 cases so far this year. That's 128, not 128,000, which is admittedly up on the 54 for, the, for last year. But, you know, these are, um, these are still very small numbers. A lot of modelling going into this. But predictably enough, despite it all being hypothetical, theoretical, the councils in London have actually written to households saying that they could uh, be facing a major outbreak and have even gone so far uh, as to say that any child identified as a close contact of a measles case, that's a close contact, not even someone who's actually sick with measles, could be asked to self-isolate. So more isolation for school children for three weeks uh, if they do not have satisfactory vaccination status. So here we go, more vaccine passports, kids, councils in London threatening kids with missing th another three weeks of schooling as though they can really afford to do that with all the, all the education they've missed in the last several years if they're not up to date on their vaccines. So uh, yeah, more, the, the vaccine passport lives on, it seems. Now, it's obviously a good thing that um, we're not facing a measles epidemic um, in London. Um, but I, I have to confess to feeling a slight twinge of disappointment on hearing this story because actually a measles outbreak, um, and there have been measles outbreaks in other parts of the world, notably New York, as I've written about in The Daily Skeptic, 
um, is quite good for the pro-free speech cause. So one argument against suppressing people who raise questions about the safety and efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines, one argument against suppressing that content on social media is it makes the public health authorities look frit as though they've got something to hide. And far from reducing vaccine hesitancy, that behaviour increases vaccine hesitancy. And that won't just mean fewer people taking the COVID-19 vaccines, which is the outcome you're hoping to prevent, but it will also mean fewer people taking other vaccines, such as the MMR, and that can result in viral outbreaks that we haven't seen for, you know, 25, 50 years. And here was the evidence. So I'm going to remain neutral on the question of whether or not London is going to be afflicted with a measles outbreak, because if it is, I think that serves the larger purpose of uh, fighting censorship, particularly on social media. Uh, Yeah, yeah, because... There are there's a silver lining in any uh, in any disease outbreak, I suppose. <laughs> and it does sound heartless, and obviously you don't want any children to die. Um, uh, finally, you were going to tell us um, some breaking news. Uh, I think news which broke earlier today, uh, which is that Dan Andrews, um, Chairman Dan, as he's known because of his Maoist policies during the pandemic, who was responsible for unbelievably draconian stay-at-home policies in the state of Victoria in Australia, including Melbourne, uh, has uh, stepped down rather unexpectedly and seemingly is claiming that he's going out on a high. Do you want to tell us about that, Will? Yeah, so this is the notorious pandemic leader, as uh, as we've dubbed him in Daily Skeptic, uh, Dan Andrews, and he has uh, this shock resignation as Premier of Victoria, the state in Australia. Notorious, of course, for imposing on his state the longest COVID lockdown in the world, and then the police meeting out brutal, brutal treatment of anyone protesting that made uh, made international news back in 2021. He also imposed on his country a very uh, broad and uh, harsh uh, vaccine mandate back in the autumn of 2021, before Omicron came along and, and took the wind out of their sails. Uh, he forced uh, anyone on the so-called state authorised workers list a million Australians living in Victoria, people such as professional athletes, mining workers and journalists, all had to be uh, double vaccinated. So we're not just talking healthcare workers and care home workers. Uh, we're talking wide uh, wide swathes of the working public all had to get vaccinated. So a really strict regime. And of course, made international news back at the start of 2022, uh, when his state's uh, strict vaccine regime uh, managed to end up kicking world tennis number one Novak Djokovic out of the country just before the start of the uh, Australian Open. Uh, so really notorious uh, pandemic leader, and he's quit. Uh, he announced it this morning, a bit of a bit of a shock. He's actually, unfortunately, I regret to inform uh, listeners who aren't aware that he has unfortunately uh, not suffered any decline in popularity due to his authoritarian COVID policies. Uh, in fact. Uh, despite all of that, uh, back at the end of last year, 2022, he was elected uh, just as strongly, equally strongly as he was before re-elected uh, in what was dubbed a Dan slide. So really, really regrettable um, for the sceptic cause, for the anti-lockdown cause, because it really, it really does just show the uphill struggle, I think, uh, that we that we have, uh, at least in some 
in some areas against authoritarian politicians who impose these brutal restrictions on free societies and get away with it. And even, sadly enough, sadly to say, get fated, get celebrated and, and don't suffer the consequences. So so it's good news that he's going, uh, but it's not like Jacinda Ardern where we were, were celebrating uh, the huge decline in the polls for her party and, the, and she was leaving in, well, in a, in a form of defeat. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case in this case. Okay, maybe it's a bit, a, a bit malicious to to hope that there's some kind of sordid scandal behind the scenes that's the, the real reason he's he's leaving. But there's been no hint of that, so I think that might just be a, a malicious thought in our in our minds. Well, it may be wishful thinking, but on the other hand, there may be more to this than meets the eye. So Enoch Powell famously said that all political careers end in failure. So it's very unusual for a politician to leave office if they don't have to. They're almost always forced out, you know, clinging onto the radiator. Um, And um, it may be that like Nicola Sturgeon, um, he's a the reason he's going is because he's about to be engulfed in a hugely embarrassing scandal and he's hoping to kind of downplay it by not being in office or not being in office when it breaks so he's then forced out of office because of the scandal. So um, let's see. But I'm I'm a bit more optimistic than you, I think. I think uh, it may be that some horrible scandal is about to uh, be deposited on his head. Well, as I say, that's uh, maybe it's mean-spirited to hope it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much, Will Jones, with our top stories of the week. Great. Thanks, Toby. All right, that was Toby and Will. And now we're back with me and Toby for everyone's favourite section. It is, of course, Peak Woke. So, loads of Peak Wokes, but we don't want to make the show eight hours, so I'll go through mine pretty quickly. First one, Emma Raducanu has backed a reimagining of a classic fairy tale that writes out Prince Charming as a lesson to girls that they do not need men to achieve financial success. So she's the tennis star, obviously. And she's been in a video for HSBC reading out Fairer Tales, which is a book by Emma Dodds, published in 2018, which is some woke bollocks about women can make money for themselves and blah, 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 blah. So now another generation of women will have miserable lives because of feminist propaganda. And one in a billion of them will become tennis players and it will work for them. But the rest of them will just have corporate jobs when they could have been mothers. And then another one in the children's book world, Stonehenge was built by Black Britons, a new children's history book has claimed. This is brilliant Black British history by the Nigerian-born British author Atin Uki, perhaps. And uh, this says that every British person comes from a migrant, but the very first Britons were black. And this is part of the disinformation campaign we've seen with the Horrible History song singing about how it was always black people in Britain and it was always a black country. The introduction says Britain has been a mostly white country for a lot less time than it has been a mostly black country and uh and it says it's 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 extraordinary and it seems to be a bit of disinformation that comes back to the very flimsy cheddar man argument when we don't even know the skin color of this cheddar man but it's this ludicrous claim that there's just been black people in england forever and britain and it's just just pure year zero disinformation that kids are just going to believe and you just change history yeah, uh, that's uh, that's an odd one, and we discussed it last week, didn't we? Because it was it's similar to the claim made in the uh, episode of Horrible Histories. Um, it's 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 odd, isn't it, about uh, this rewriting of history? Um, uh, uh, Robert Toombs wrote a good piece about it in the Telegraph yesterday, and it goes back to what Orwell said, which is, "He who controls the present 
controls the past and he who controls the past controls the future mm. and that's what's really going on here um if they can if if the if the kind of woke left can completely rewrite history it's a way of influencing the future yeah absolutely i've got one more toby but do you want to give us a, a peak woke um there was one pretty odd one which is um you're familiar with um PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Yeah. They've just launched a campaign in which they're urging people not to consume dairy products because it is um, the female members of various species which are exploited in the production of dairy products. So they're coming up with this sort of feminist argument that if you care about women's rights, you should care about the rights of female cows and female sheep and female goats um, and shouldn't shouldn't consume dairy products. And it's a kind of odd argument that kind of women's rights should be extended, you know, across the animal kingdom. I mean, does that mean that, you know, there's going to be this kind of group of PETA investigators trying to find the kind of Russell brands of the kind of squirrel population? I mean, it's, it's such an odd idea, isn't it? I mean, are you going to protect, are you going to say that from now on, all female animals have to kind of give consent before they have sex with male members of their same species. Um, uh, it's 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 just it just seems to be the kind of reducto ad absurdum of um, the animal rights movement. It's a kind of weird hybrid of animal rights and women's rights, and the idea that you can extend women's rights across every species. Um, which is just completely ridiculous. Right. As in a sort of anthropomorphism as well, isn't it? Which I very there nearly is, said. Yeah. Very yeah. nearly said that right. I was close. <laughs> um, do you have any, I've got one more, Toby. Do you have any more on the Pete Woke? Yeah, I've got one more, which is I just wanted to mention um, a recent success by the Free Speech Union, which is that uh, this um, uh, art, this um, uh, colonel, a medical officer in the British Army Reserve, uh, Colonel Dr. Kelvin Wright, um, was essentially forced out of the army um, when he reposted um, a comment by the gender critical feminist Helen Joyce on his personal Facebook account. Um, something like, if we can't say trans women aren't women, then um, uh, how can we defend women's rights? Something on those lines. And um, or we, if we can't say that in the public square, how can you say that we have women's rights? Um, and uh uh, he was um, he was placed under investigation for wrong think, um, and rather than go through the humiliation of being investigated, he resigned. Uh, but the investigation then continued. Anyway, he reached out to the Free Speech Union, and we found him a top employment barrister who helped him navigate that investigation. He's now been completely exonerated. Um, but it is just absolutely shocking that this guy is a bona fide war hero, served two tours of duty in Afghanistan, ran a hospital um, in Helmland, um, uh, should be essentially hounded out of the British Army for not kind of complying with trans dogma. Has it really come to this? Is that what the British Army has been reduced to? I suppose it has. Yeah, it's disgusting, but I'm glad the Free Speech Union helped out. Um, shall I just add one more, which was such a big story, it could have gone in the main section, but we just had too many stories this week. And this is BT essentially sacking white people. The Mail on Sunday covered it. Telecom giant BT was last night under fire after a top executive declared that plans to cut more than a thousand jobs in rural East Anglia while hiring new staff in major cities will boost its workforce diversity. So 
its new chief executive, Alison Kirby, could pocket up to 220000 in bonus payments specifically linked to diversity and inclusion targets. Asked whether boosting diversity and inclusion was a key reason for relocating jobs, Howard Watson, who's BT's chief networks officer, replied that was a significant factor in the choice of the location. So it's the new way to get rid of white people. You can just axe a thousand white people because you, you go from rural to urban areas and then you, ma- you meet your diversity targets and you get your bonus because you're literally financially incentivized to sack and generally erase white people in the continuing obscene oppression and racism against white people. Toby. Yeah, I wonder if this is um, part of their ESG commitment um, or whether they're... Um, uh, wanting to be certified or have been certified as a B Corp company. Yeah, but we see this kind of behavior across the corporate sector. I mean, that is one of the real oddities of the age we're living in, is that um, the corporate sector is almost as woke as the public sector. I think, you know, 25 years ago, as recently as 25 years ago, um, the private sector acted as a kind of small C conservative bulwark against the creep of progressive values into our society at large via the public sector, and it was, you know, it was it was a counterbalance, a counterweight. Uh, it's not anymore. They're actually in lockstep together. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredibly disturbing. And I don't know what what has to happen. What kind of level of systemic racism against white people? I mean, that's literally the definition of institutional racism. If you look it up, is what they've done here. And I wonder how much has to happen before people say this has to stop. But again, a bit, a bit like the civil service story, it doesn't stop. We complain about it and nothing happens. But there it is. All right, on that depressing note, let's have a quick look at the reviews. I wouldn't say I'm doing a full review of the reviews because I'm kind of toning it down because Toby said I was getting too angry. Although many people have written to me saying that's the bit they like. Then again, I, I'm not sure I want to read the reviews because some of them are so awful. Like that one that insulted me so viciously, which I couldn't really believe that anyone would take the time to do that. But let's read some of the nice ones. Nick is fabulously well-prepared. How about that? And today I've been even more well-prepared than ever with three dense pages of notes. So thank you for that. Yeah, it's an absurd criticism against me, the preparation. Nick is one of those naturally very funny people. Oh, thank you very much. I barely even try and be funny on this podcast. I guess that proves it. Toby does a great job as the straight man. It's a bit harsh because sometimes Toby's funny. They both manage <laughs> to sound non-nutty but skeptical. A hard note to strike. Great listening. That's from Civitas Peregrina. Thank you very much. Someone talks about Russell Brand here. We've already addressed that complaint, but they still gave it five stars. Someone else, Toby, says life-changing. Life-changing from Andy Hudder. I can honestly say discovering this podcast has changed my life. I've learned so much and enjoyed the journey. This podcast, Nick's The Current Thing and Headliners are not to be missed. Toby, if you have the chance, please find time for headliners. Nick, love you, but please find a decent football team to support. Weirdly, I've just had a buy me a coffee that said I support a great football team. So, Divided opinion on that one. Um, in fact, someone says the fact that I'm a United fan is, is the best. So controversial, different opinions on that one. Controversy, but Toby, they're saying they want you back on headliners on GB News. Uh-huh. But you didn't oh, want to do it because it was too to... hard. It was too hard. It was, it was really hard. Yeah, it was two hours <laughs> of preparation. <laughs> the workaholic Toby outworked by Nick Dixon. Who'd have thought it? Um, another one criticizes you about the brand thing, but we've addressed that. Another one says, fantastic. As much as I would like to write a scathing review just to trigger Nick, I simply can't. Informative, hilarious, and intelligent debate. But there's almost no point, highly recommend. There's almost no point doing it because if I'm not going to read the nasty ones anymore, then, you know, maybe we shouldn't even bother doing the uh, the review, the reviews. But the nasty ones are sometimes so nasty that it just gets a bit weird to even read them out. And like you yeah. say, I, 
I control my reaction now, but I have overreacted in the past. But when they're criticizing my appearance, and one guy called me an incel, which I have to object to that, because my ex-girlfriend was extremely hot. I was on a date with an attractive woman just last week. So it's calmed down the incel rhetoric. It is a character I play <laughs> up to a bit sometimes. I've done it to myself, so I might have to address that. It's merely a character I play. It's a persona, guys. But um, and yeah, when you when you criticize my appearance, well, I think you've completely lost your mind. I mean, what a strange thing to do with your life. What an absolute loser. But yeah, I'm not going to read them. So Toby, anything to add? No, I don't think I've got anything to add to the review of the reviews this week. I'm pleasantly surprised that there wasn't there didn't seem to be any sniping comments about me. Uh, well, I, I left those the, out. The two brand yeah, ones. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, all right. That's review the reviews. I mean, I know people love it when I when I really mouth off, but Toby's Toby's posh friends don't like it, so I'm I'm not sure about it. But um, what I will say is thank you for the praise for the current thing, and please go and listen to my other podcast, The Current Thing. It has similarly great reviews. We've had all sorts. Someone just posted intelligent intellectual interviews. Doug Stokes, brilliant, absolutely superb interview. On and on and on. I could go on. Uh, incredible reviews for that. We've just done another one with the Reverend Jamie Franklin, who's a big favorite on that. We've got loads of exciting guests coming up, talking about masculinity. I think Laura Dodds was doing it, Will Nolan, all sorts of people. So the current thing on all platforms, just plug in that. And of course, if you want to support me in any way, go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. You can donate me a digital coffee or two and I'll reply or five and I'll reply and uh, reply to your comments on there. Thank you very much. Toby, any, any plugs? Yeah, I guess I'll plug the Free Speech Union. Not only did we um, leap to the defense of... Kelvin Wright um, and get a result for him this week. But I think we played a part in um, killing off the conversion therapy ban. We didn't talk about that. Um, maybe we should have done. We were catching up on trans issues. But um, the government slipped out the news in the Sunday Times um, on Sunday that um, they weren't going to bring forward um, the conversion therapy ban, which they had been planning to do and which Theresa May had promised to do. And I think that's partly because the Free Speech Union has been lobbying really hard behind the scenes to try and make the government think again about that. And we also encouraged our members to write letters to their MPs, uh, raising their concerns about the impact it would likely have on free speech, particularly if it included a ban on parents trying to dissuade their children from taking beta blockers or having life-changing surgery, which there's a risk it would have done. Uh, Anyway, so that was another victory for the FSU, as well as other GC feminist lobby groups. Um, and so if you support the work we're doing, please join this Cheapest Chips. Um, go to our website, which is um, freespeechunion.org. You click on the join page. And um, if all you can afford is to become a monthly member, become a monthly member. Uh, you can cancel any time. Um, and uh, also, if you enjoy the work the Daily Skeptic does, um please support us too. For £5 a month, you can become a below-the-line commentator. Uh, That's uh, dailyskeptic.org. And very important, if anyone's still listening, which I'm sure they are, or they wouldn't even know the catchphrase of the show. Many people love the long episodes. We are looking for a website designer. So we need a website designer for our new, what would you call it, the the paid content that we're going to host, extra content for people who love this podcast. So we need a website that's going to have paid content, a paywall aspect, and be able to crucially it's got to be good at housing video and we might use the ghost platform because we like the fact that they don't charge you commission but we don't have to use ghost but that's one possibility so if you are someone who's familiar with ghost absolutely get in touch or if you're just somebody who thinks you could do a great website then please let us know we have some money to pay you so that's that's crucial we won't say exactly how much but it will be decent 
And uh, Toby, anything you want to add to that to make it clearer for them? Yeah, I mean, I just we, we want to set up um, uh, a website which um, publishes podcasts. So um, all the content that's currently free with the current thing, with the Weekly Skeptic, maybe a couple of other podcasts to be confirmed. Um, we want that to be available for free on the website. But in addition, if you want premium content, if you want extra stuff that will record at the same time or get the content creators to record, then you'd pay a subscription of something like £5 a month. And that would entitle you to access not only all the free stuff, but the additional premium content as well. So we want some of the stuff to just be available for free, but we also want some stuff to be paywalled, so only available to premium subscribers. Um, and uh, anyone who thinks they, they, they might be able to do that, um, a web designer with some experience of designing products like this, some graphic design experience, um, please do get in touch. We're thinking of the Ghost platform, but it could be WordPress. Um, but we don't want to pay too high a fee uh, annually, um, and we don't want to pay. We don't want a site that you know is going to charge us commission for every subscriber we pick up, um, like Substack. Um, so yeah, if you think you can do that, please get in touch. The best way to contact us is um, probably at um, the Daily Skeptic um, at gmail.com. Or did you give the? I think we have set up another email address, haven't we? Just for this, but let, let's leave it at the Daily Skeptic at gmail com for now. And maybe put website in the subject heading. Put website in the subject header, and we'll see them straight away. Yeah, so that would be great if someone wants to reply on that, and it might need a bit of upkeep in future. Something unless it's totally idiot proof for us to upkeep it. So there's there's that element as well. But if you think you could yeah. do that, let us know. We are considering all kinds of applications for that. All right, excellent. So I think that's pretty much going to have to be it. So until next week, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.